Callum, welcome to the Man Cave Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. Um, ever since I met you, I knew that I wanted to get you on as a guest to go through your story. Um, I, I still remember the meeting that you, you shared and it was extremely powerful. Um, but just want to ask you a few questions first. What, of course. What's your thoughts on the Man Cave so far? Because you've been here from the start, right? Pretty much. Yeah. And seen it grow. So I saw, I suppose it's, it's funny, like just kind of uh, listen to a couple of the other episodes as well. Like a lot of people kind of get in contact through social media. Yeah. And that's exactly kind of my situation as well. That yeah. uh, a friend had shared a post on, on Facebook. And uh, at the time, I think I just needed, uh, it was exactly what I needed. Yep. Um, and yeah, so then joined, uh, it was the open session in March, I think it was. Um, so yeah, right and, near the beginning. Yeah. Mm. So I think, yeah, I hadn't been going very long at all. Mm. And that was like the first, I mean, to me, obviously I didn't know what it was like beforehand, but it certainly felt that it was kind of at that point, that's where it kind of really snowballed yeah. into to what it is now. Yeah. Um, and I think I'm in quite a fortunate position in that I've been able to kind of to attend and share and listen and as you said there are some really kind of moving really powerful stories as well mm. um and at the same time kind of been going off and doing my own thing yeah. um and just kind of taking the time to figure out who I am yeah. post well post everything really yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah I do notice just, that about you actually you um you tend to dip in and out. Yeah. Where we have members who are more regular mm. um, and kind of come every week. Um, then there's the others that do it two to three. You will kind of do three or four sessions and then we won't see you for three weeks. And we're yeah. all like, where's Callum gone? <laughs> and um, I think we miss your hugs the most. Um, you yeah. do literally give the best hugs ever. <laughs> um, but yeah, everyone does have a really powerful story. Um, so grateful to to experience, you know, everyone's story. Um, but yours was definitely one that has stuck with me. Um, so let's get into it. Of course. So first, let's start with what brought you to the man cave. So I think at the time, I think I was just really in a place where I didn't quite know where I was heading. Um, and didn't quite know what I was doing with myself and just, I felt that I'd kind of lost my sense of identity. Mm. Um, and I think they're probably, reflecting on it, I think that probably came from what, uh, going through my treatment as well. So um, I, to, I suppose to kind of bring yeah. everyone up to speed that um, I had a, quite an uncommon strand of Hodgkin's lymphoma um, which uh, I was diagnosed with when I was 22. Yeah, so this is back in 2017. Yeah. Um, and uh, and before that, um, my... So this is... So I'd, I'd received my diagnosis, um, yeah, pretty early on. Um, but kind of 18 months before that, um, my dad was going through his treatment for prostate cancer, advanced prostate cancer. Right. Um, and I think uh, it certainly kind of shaped my experiences and kind of who I am as a person and 
Um, which I think is funny because I'd always argued that actually cancer didn't define me. Mm. And it does and it doesn't. Um, but yeah, so um, when I was at uni, um, my, so I, my dad had been diagnosed um, and right from the off we knew it was not good news and um, any treatment that we have, they'd have would be um, to improve his condition rather than, and to kind of prolong his life rather than um, as, a, as a form of curing it. Um, so getting to grips with that um, whilst I was away at uni. And mm. so he was going through his treatment whilst I was studying. Um, and it was only really in my, uh, so after the Christmas break, when he'd gone through um, a real physical change, mm. um, that's when kind of I'd noticed actually like how bad the situation actually was. And I think that's kind of when I kind of really took stock. Um, and then, so I remember going back to uni afterwards and just before the kind of the, the, um, like the exam period. And um, I remember watching, um, watching a film about time, which is a brilliant film if you get the okay. chance to watch it. But, um, that's all kind of about it's oh it's a brilliant <laughs> film I can't watch it now but it's genuinely one of my favourites what, what is it so it's basically it's about a, a, a time traveller and um, so towards uh, the risk of spoiling it towards the end uh, one of the characters has to deal with kind of significant loss um, and that I think just triggered a real response and I had kind of a real breakdown. Um, well, let's, sorry to interrupt you. Let's talk yeah. about that because yeah. I don't think I was actually aware about that part. No. I didn't know that you and your dad had it. And yeah. So this is all before you found out, right? Yeah, so... But that's that's got to be some <laughs> real, like, yeah. heavy emotions to deal with. Yeah, um, I think... I suppose as a family, we'd always been quite open. Um, and um, there's one thing which my dad had kind of taught me when he was going through his treatment. And it's, it's something which I then took on kind of going through my treatment and subsequently kind of life afterwards is that there's no point being upset about the things you can't control. Mm -hmm. So control the things you can. Yeah, yeah. And that to me is, is attitude and aptitude. So being able to understand that it's not a particularly uh, enjoyable situation to be in, mm. but that actually there is, there is a silver lining to it and that or, or the silver lining is what you make of it. Um, and I think there's a lot of doom and gloom, um, but actually I suppose the the way I saw it was that it kind of gave me an opportunity to really, I suppose, give myself some closure. Like every single time I saw my dad and every time I'd say goodbye, I always made the, the effort to tell him that I loved him. Yeah, of course, yeah. And my dad wasn't a particularly um, emotional person. I mean, he had a temper, but um, he, he wasn't particularly, um, yeah, he, he wasn't particularly good at expressing kind of yep. his, his love. Um, 
And uh, yeah, I think that, I think there was just a one point where he kind of turned around and, and told me the same, and I didn't quite know how to how to react to that. But mm. I think in that situation, being able to yeah, just feeling, I suppose, feeling sorry for myself, and it wasn't my position, to, it wasn't my situation to feel sorry for. Um, and so, oh, sorry, feeling sorry yeah. for yourself because your dad had cancer. Yeah. Right. Um, and I suppose in that sense, yeah, just feeling like I just had to kind of get my head down and, and crack on and continue kind of wanting to make him proud. And just because I think another thing with my dad was that he would never want people to kind of go out of their way to, to accommodate him at all. Like he, he didn't want to be treated any differently. I was about to ask that, was um, it also your dad's kind of instruction, look son, this is the situation, yeah. go live your life kind of thing? Yeah, I think so. And he's, he'd always made sure that we were kind of looked after, um, whether or not we were aware of it. Um, but always made sure that we held ourselves to kind of a really high standard mm. and actually did the things that we wanted to do. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I remember kind of taking some time out after, um, after my studies um, and just so I could just reset and just um, have an opportunity to kind of get my, get my head together and just kind of figure out where I was with everything. Um, went back, completed my studies um, and um, I suppose dad going through his treatment it was our new normal um and i yeah. suppose we adapted to that as a family um to to make it as again normal and our routine as much as possible and what treatment did he go through so he went through chemotherapy yeah. um so he went through two lots of chemotherapy um i think he went through some radiotherapy as well um and uh i think he'd gone through some I think went through some kind of experimental chemotherapy as well. Okay. Um, but I'm, I don't fully remember that. Um, yeah, so anyway, um, so whilst he was going through his uh, treatment and must have been Easter 2017, um, I noticed I kind of had a, had a bit of a lump kind of under my, under my jaw. Um, and it hadn't kind of changed in size and I, I knew what I was looking for in terms of symptoms because um, obviously kind of with, with my dad and yeah. um, I know what I was looking for, knowing if there was any change, any, any um, if I felt any different or anything like that. And, um, and I didn't. So I kind of just attributed it to being like a fatty lump and it didn't grow in size. It didn't, um, I said it didn't feel any different at all. Yeah. And then I think one, I think one day, I think I just went, you know what, sod it. I'm just going to go to the, the university nurse and just see, just kind of let her know, see what's, see what's up. Um, she then referred me to the local ENT, so the ears, nose and throat um, department within the hospital. Had all these kind of scans and everything. And I think probably a bit of naivety, um, I just kind of thought, oh, well, it's, it's just routine. Like, they just kind of want to make sure um, that everything's fine. Not really, again, not really kind of thinking about it. And again, still being a uni, you're just kind of mm. enjoying the uni lifestyle. Mm. Um, and then 
I remember I get the, uh, I got a, it's either a consultation letter um, or a phone call to say, um, be at this, be at this uh, particular department. So I think it was the, uh, the Patrick Day unit. And I remember it so clearly. It said, yeah, remember, uh, please be at the Patrick Day unit for 11 o'clock. I was like, yeah, that's fine. So I went to the hospital and said, Patrick Day unit, bright green. And they were kind of bright arrows that kind of followed you round. Um, so following the arrows, looking down, I look up and just see Patrick Day unit, oncology. I thought, ah, shit. Mm. Like, this is not... Also, you didn't... You didn't... You weren't aware when you got that letter... Yeah, I didn't... You were going to an oncology unit. I didn't clock at all. Because obviously being so, called Patrick Day, yeah, you're not going to... Yeah, you just yeah. kind of think, oh, this is... Yeah, it's fine. So like what was going through your head at that point? Like, what... Just to kind of... So, <laughs> abscess or cyst or I, you know, I I don't even I think again just kind of attribute it to like a yeah like a fatty lump again like I hadn't too really, busy out drinking and partying yeah too, like, yeah <laughs> <laughs> just yeah not, not really kind of worrying about that mm. just and then again I kind of looked up and I said it said oncology and I was like oh this is not going to be good news did that just hit that's you? yeah I was like this is going to be like they're going to tell you you've got cancer. Is that uh, what the, the thoughts that were going through yeah. your mind? Like straight away, they're going to tell you uh, you've got absolutely, it. Absolutely, yeah. Really? So God. I thought, well, I, uh, yeah, I certainly kind of thought it, it really wasn't going to be good news at but all. But no symptoms at this point? Didn't feel anything? Didn't? No. Again, all I had was this, again, this kind of lump there. Uh, not that you'd really notice yeah. it at all. Um, did then, you, sorry, did you think that as soon as you went to oncology, because you knew that your dad had cancer yeah. and was going through treatment, that it instantly was because he had it? Uh, I, I think just in that moment, I think I was just, I, th- I, I think I was just thinking about just kind of getting through, getting through that moment and being able to mm. be like, just whatever they say, like you're gonna be okay. Like mm. you will. Things don't change in that moment. The world doesn't stop turning. Like you'll and get. You were how old at this point? Twenty two. Wow. Yeah, that's a mature head for twenty two, <laughs> isn't it? But, like, but I think again, like I think it was. I think I had to had to grow up with with mm. my dad kind of going through history yeah. as well, and I think, um, I think everyone who's directly involved in and can see kind of that that physical change in someone as well i think that that certainly leaves a real impression on uh, whether that's yeah close family friends everyone knows someone who's gone through an experience like that was that diff- was that more difficult for you because you were away so your dad was going through where were you yeah. in, where were you studying so, so i was down in brighton um, right. And so we we lived um, just uh, South Buckinghamshire, so not far from from High Wycombe. Okay. Um, so well, yeah, that's two and a half, three hours away. So how often were you seeing your dad? Uh, so I was, I think there was a good patch of, mm, I think at the time, I spent summer with him, and hadn't really kind of noticed, uh, and then kind of went back to uni. And then, so September through to about December, mm. um, it's quite typical that, that you don't really kind of go back and see, yeah, see family. Um, and again, I think it was that Christmas break period. So maybe in what, three months? Yep. Um, and yeah, that, that had kind of really 
changed my perception of um yeah of, of that whole situation really um but i think that yeah so i remember once they'd uh i remember kind of sitting in the waiting room waiting for the oncologist and plastered around the walls are all Macmillan cancer support and what to do in the event. I thought, right, they're really kind of laboring the point here. Mm, like, yeah. <laughs> I understand, but at the same time, like it's, um, it's a bit of a, it's, I know that it's there to support you, but at the same time, it does feel like it's um, just almost kind of twisting the life a little bit. Mm. But anyway, I remember kind of going into the consultation room and um, sat, sat with the, the clinician and um the yeah the first thing he said was um uh just to kind of make you aware that the, it is um or we, we suspect it is cancer i was like right straight away straight away wow there's i mean there's there's no way to deliver that around the bushes there yeah um and so you see a lot of depictions of people getting their diagnosis in TV and film and stuff. I think the best one I've seen, which is most uh, relatable to me, was um, actually the beginning of Breaking Bad, where Walter White has just received a diagnosis and that it all just kind of goes fuzzy. One um, of my favourite shows it's, ever. Like, honestly, <laughs> Breaking it's, Bad is amazing. It's so... But that again, that specific moment is so... It completely ran. I know, I know exactly what scene you're going on yeah. about. Yeah. So just that slightly kind of blurry vision, the high pitch ringing in my ears, mm. everything's kind of slightly muffled. And again, this is what six years ago now, mm. and I can still remember it kind of so clearly. Yeah, I don't think that um, will ever leave you though, will it? No, absolutely no. not. And then I remember. I don't really remember the drive home, but I remember kind of getting back. And my mum was in the kitchen and my dad kind of greeted me. I remember kind of sitting on the sofa and just went, it's not good news. And So you went straight from, because I'm guessing yeah, straight, that was a hospital down yeah, yeah. in That was, Brighton. yeah, down, down in You Brighton. went straight home? Straight home. Yeah, of course, yeah, as you um, would. And, yeah, so the, and he said, and my dad just went, I thought it probably would be. And it's the, the feeling of the, the, biggest feeling I had at that moment was shame shame yeah and guilt that having to tell my family that I was going to make their lives infinitely times harder and that wow I was not yeah. expecting you to say those emotions or yeah. those feelings yeah that was shame and guilt it's because it's just like it just felt to me like we were already already going through enough like mm. And then all of a sudden, kind of, it's another thing for them to have to think about. It's another thing to for us to have to deal with as a family. Um, and yeah, I remember just my and my dad being so understanding, I suppose, as he would be. Of course, yeah. Um, and then kind of my mum came through, and she was like, "Oh, what's the news?" and kind of looked at the two of us and then she burst into tears. I then burst into tears. So your dad knew before your mum? Yeah. It wasn't a together thing? No. No. And then I didn't tell my sisters because I didn't know how to tell them. Mm. Um, and it was only, uh, I think I told my older sister 
last just because um, I think she probably would have taken it hardest. Really? But my younger sister, my younger sister, she seemed to cotton on to something. Mm. Um, so I had to go for, for a fair more scans. And um, so I went for a biopsy in, in London as well. So um, because of my age, I was then referred to the Royal Marsden. Um, and because, uh, and I remember that was a whole other experience, but um, because of my, yeah, because of my age, because of um, the the complexity of my situation as well, um, that's why I was referred. Um, and again, you kind of go through all this, all these emotions again of being in that that limbo period of not knowing what's going to happen at the next uh, at the next scan, what's not gonna, what's going to happen at the next um, just your next consultation, what are your options like all these thoughts are kind of traveling a million miles in your head and just mm-hmm. going round and round and round and there isn't anything you can do about it. Yeah. Um, and so again, just being able to just like take a step and being like, okay, again, I can't control that. I can't control those thoughts. Mm. But what I can do is I can continue with my routine. What I know is, is kind of working for me. Um, and again, those things I have control over. Yeah, see, I only had, I have a, I'm trying to put myself in your shoes and how I would mm-hmm. feel. Because as you know, because I've shared it before, and mm-hmm. I think I shared it on the last podcast, I found a lump in my groin and was being tested for lymphoma. Yeah. And that, those four weeks, and obviously I'm sat in Milton Keynes Cancer Centre, yeah. like having blood tests and everything else. And that thought of, finding out what the results were. I was trying my best to stay positive. I was doing mm. everything. But that is the hardest thing to do. Yeah. And at that point, you've already got it. <laughs> and yeah. you're, you know, and you're having to wait for more mm. feedback after the scans and, and, and biopsies, yeah. etc. So I I can I can't imagine. <laughs> I'm trying, but I, I just can't put myself in that in I think, that position. I th- I think they that I I don't think those feelings are dissimilar though. Mm. That actually, again, it's still that kind of, uh, it's that waiting game mm. that you don't really know where you stand. And I suppose, yes, I'd had more of an insight in that I had told I had some form of cancer. Um, so they didn't know what can, what type uh, it was? No. So at the, t- at the time that I'd been diagnosed, they didn't they didn't know what type it was. So oh, again, God. that's when they then referred me. Yeah. Um, and so, because originally... Um, uh, that was I remember kind of in the in the consultation they said, yeah you've got cancer we'll give you um, straight off the cuff um, we'll get you in to do some banking um, then we'll get you on to a standard form of chemotherapy. I was like, what do you mean banking? I'm a student. I don't have any money. They're like, no no spam banking. I was like, okay oh right yeah. okay um, and they said yeah because um, you do know that uh, chemotherapy can leave you at the risk of being infertile. I was like. Shit, I do now. Yeah, <laughs> this yeah. is not the That's a lot yeah. for a twenty-two year old. Yeah. <laughs> a lot. So in that moment, kind of you're thinking there like, I don't really know what to do with this information. I I know I'm gonna have to deal with it. But, but by this point just, were you kinda on the phone to your dad, like getting no, so advice I, or support? No, so I'd I'd called I'd called my dad to say I was coming home. Mm. Um and that so they knew to they knew to expect me. Um, and then again, that's where that's where I told him. But that was kind of the that was the extent of 
of that conversation. Sorry, so like, after you found out, yeah, were yeah, you, sorry, was yeah. that, yeah. This, were you getting kind of support so, from him at these stages? Or? Um, I think it was just, I suppose, yes and no. Like, I think we, we had that form of relationship where it's almost didn't have to say anything. Mm. Um, that we kind of understood how the other person was feeling. Mm. Um, excuse me. And um, yeah, just to, yeah, so I mean, he had his own stuff going on. I had my own stuff going on. Um, but I suppose we would just kind of check in on each other to see how we were doing. And um, yeah, so I think that sort of kind of brought us close together. But, and then he unfortunately passed in the, uh, in uh, March 2018. Um, and I think that also kind of, obviously kind of hits home as well. So in the space of, I mean, 18 months less than, um, having to deal with my own uh, diagnosis, my dad's treatment, um, the loss of my father as well. Mate. Um, <laughs> It's, you certainly have to grow up kind of very, very quickly. Yeah, that's a lot. That's making me emotional. That's yeah. a lot. Yeah. But, um, and again, like, there are, I mean, like, I can look back on it and kind of still see kind of funny moments in, in all of it as well. Like, um, so, <laughs> um, like, with the, uh, with, like, the sperm banking and everything, that was kind of the most awkward experience, as um, as I'm sure you can imagine. But... They said, uh, uh, yeah, so we'll freeze, freeze your sperm for kind of 50 years, um, but in the event that you die, um, do you give permission to someone else to use your sperm? I was like, right. Hell, man. Yeah. So you're kind of there like, so all of a sudden having to deal with the fact that, well, have to, having to deal with my own mortality, um, having to deal with um, potential infertility kind of later, later in life, um, potential that if I... So with a with a partner or anything, if in the event I do die, if they can use my if they mm. can use my sperm, yeah, all at twenty two, they're like, oh Jesus, like this is pretty heavy. Yeah, that is extremely heavy. And were you going through treatment when you lost your dad, or was this before you no, started so the treatment? So when so after I'd been referred to the Marsden. They'd, again, and they'd done kind of a lot of their biopsies and everything. And um, they basically turned around and said, oh, yeah, so because of the strand that you have, it's we're not going to do anything with it. Like, and just what? remind everyone what it is you had. So it's nodular lymphocyte predominant Hodgkin's lymphoma. So it's not not particularly common. So they say kind of one in every, uh, one in every 20 people with cancers have Hodgkin's lymphoma. Yeah. One in five of those one in 20 have the strand that I have. So this is what every one in 10,000 or so. I think my figures might be slightly off, but um, yeah, uh-huh. so it's not particularly common uh, in, in, in the UK, but um, yeah. So they said, so how it works is that um, you won't have um, kind of tumors as such. Um, you might have kind of, uh, it, it might kind of pop up in your lymph nodes, but it also has the opportunity to kind of disappear by itself. So as long as you're not showing any B symptoms, which are things like um, any, we will show that there's been any progression, then we're not going to do anything. We're just going to um, kind of watch and, and wait and keep you under supervision. 
did did that make it better for you? Or was that uh, a complete, I am lost here in the dark because it's like, it could go away. Yeah. It could kill me. My yeah. dad's just passed. Like that is yeah, so a you, hell of a lot of a gray area <laughs> to be in at 22 years of age. Yeah. Um, How did it make you feel knowing that it could disappear so on its own? Again, I think it just having to, I had to kind of very much deal with the 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 facts and I couldn't really afford myself the luxury of kind of thinking about it because uh, I'm a bit of a chronic overthinker and that I would just spiral if I did so again just having to kind of teach myself to be like to and to say okay you've you're in this situation but again deal with the facts the facts are that they've said that it could so and they they said that they're not worried about it so why should you be at this point in time nothing has necessarily changed you've just got the diagnosis which i know it sounds like it's almost like i'm i'm dismissing it but mm. it's up to that point it hadn't necessarily changed my life and i'd been told and under good authority that going forward it might change my life it might not so why worry unless it's it's going to change my life at that point got a question <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i know i would not have reacted like this at 22 years of age like how did you become so mature at such a young age was that the teachings of your parents was it um you know mainly your dad who kind of guided you in that in that way or was it what was it that made you so strong at that age uh that's a good question i think i suppose dealing with so much change and i think being able to and i think having kind of such a good a support network around me as well. Like my family, again, were so incredibly tight knit and they, and we still are. Mm. Um, and having, I say, gone through that, those experiences together and we kind of did everything together as well. Um, I think that kind of really helped. Um, I think, again, having to, I suppose just, in a way, just, because I didn't have the luxury of not having to grow up, mm. I had to grow up. Mm. Um, I, I had to deal with my situation and um, I had to deal with the fact that I know that I was going to lose my dad. So um, again, to take those opportunities and be, and to make sure that I don't have any regrets um, when the time came. Um, Can I ask you another question? Of course. I'm so sorry, because my head is just like, question, question, yeah, question. Of course. Was it easier for you to deal with knowing your dad was going to pass or looking back, would you have preferred it to be instant news or? I think uh, it, for me, it was a lot, uh, it gave me a lot more closure knowing mm. that I had a finite amount of time with him. Okay. Um, knowing that, again, that I couldn't, didn't have the luxury of, of, well, no, I say 
didn't take any of that time for granted. Mm. And I think if I, if I could have five more minutes with him, I would absolutely love it. But I think I'm at peace with mm. knowing that I've told him how I felt about him. I want to kind of continue making him proud. Um, and that actually the time that I, I spent with him um, was everything I wanted from it. Yeah. You left minimal room for any regrets. Exactly. Yeah. And I appreciate that. Actually, that's a situation which, which some people don't really have. Mm. Um, So you feel blessed in a way. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Like we we never know when our, when our time's up. No. Um, And I suppose in those, uh, and I think in terms of terminal illnesses as well, like you sort of know that that time is coming. Um, you know that that there's no point living life with regret and um, that you can live it how you want to live it, really. So when your dad got diagnosed, mm-hmm. um, you were 22, right? Uh, so I would have been uh, 20, yeah, just 21 or so. 21. Yeah, so it, was my, it would have been my last year at uni, so... Mm. About 20, yeah, 2021. 20, and when your dad was diagnosed, was it a case of this isn't treatable? Yeah. So straight from yeah, the get straight, go, yeah, it's, straight it's from terminal. And, yeah, so, yeah. Um, so it, I think it just, yeah, that I think kind of, and also being, being a chronic overthinker, you kind of uh, work from kind of the worst case scenario and kind of work backwards. Yeah. Um, and I think, I remember when he was, uh, just before he was diagnosed, I remember kind of thinking, hmm, this, I don't think this is going to be good news here. Mm. So I'd almost kind of brace myself expecting the worst. Right. And that kind of taught myself, if you expect for the worst and prepare for the worst, then anything better than that is a bonus. Yeah. So when he was diagnosed, obviously it kind of really um, knocked me for six, but... Again, it's it couldn't have been any worse than I had imagined it would be, mm. um, and so that kind of really, um, I think, helped with it. And again, I think it kind of helped with, with when I was diagnosed with mine. And yeah, that if you prepare for the worst, then getting anything better than that is is a blessing. And the fact that as I said I was able to have kind of a good like a couple of years after mm-hmm. from his diagnosis with him as well that meant even more to me yeah and I'm I'm sure that kind of meant even more to 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 my sisters and, and the rest of my family mm. so but then in the yeah. middle of that you get diagnosed yeah like wow come on <laughs> just like, like if, if, if you're not you had yeah. any faith at that point it's gone yeah. <laughs> um, but, but even then like I suppose I'd like to think I'm quite a quite an optimistic person, mm. um, and the glass is never kind of half full or half empty. It's always overflowing with optimism. Like mm. That's okay. That's that's me. But and you also do strike me as a realist. Yeah, you're very good at accepting the reality, and yeah. you're very good at navigating your way around it mm. or through it. You know. Yeah, but think, with a boatload of optimism. Yeah, no, but I, on I top, think, <laughs> I, I do. I do think that both of them are are kind of interlinked that actually with every 
to me, with with every big black cloud, there's an even bigger silver lining. Okay. And you just have to be able to search for it. And sometimes, mm. yeah, it does take an awful lot to be able to try and find it, but it's there. Mm. Um, and being able to take the positive out of, out of any situation, whatever you're given, I admit is a, feels like a bit of a gift. But I think that kind of helps ground me to knowing that whatever situation I'm in, good or bad, is not going to last forever. Um, and it is what you make of it. Such a good outlook. It's such yeah. a good way of viewing things. And to be able to do that gives you the, the power. It gives you the power, don't matter what situation that you're in. If you can handle situations like that consistently mm. with the little things, the big things, and always remind yourself <clears throat> that there is a silver lining. Mm. Like I say, you can... You're a realist and an optimist at the same time. Yeah. Deal with it. Deal with the truth. Accept what is happening. But then always stay positive, knowing that yeah. you'll be all right. But there yeah. had to be times, and I'm going to go deep now, there had but, to be times where you didn't think it was going to be all right. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like, Let's talk about that. So I mentioned it before, like with the, with the sense of, with that sense of guilt and that sense of shame about having to tell people, I was so against telling anyone about my diagnosis. Really? Yeah, to begin with, because I didn't want anyone to think of me any differently. I didn't want people to treat me as weak, or I think that's the that's the mindset that I had at the time. So you thought that by telling people that you'd just been diagnosed with cancer, mm. you thought they would look at you and view you as weak. Yeah. I Can think, I well, ask why you thought that? Because I feel that... I was, again, because I'm, I suppose it feels like I've made a rod for my own back there, that because I'd always been quite a, an optimistic person, that if, if I kind of all of a sudden showed that something was wrong, mm. then I feel that people also, to me, I felt that people looked at me as a source of kind of, oh, well, he's, he's always happy. He's always got something to be happy about. Mm. Um, and if I didn't, then I felt I'd be letting people down. And that if I told people about my about my diagnosis, then they'd take pity on me, which I can't stand. Mm. Like I'm not there to to be pitied at all. Mm. Um, and so again, that to me, I think that's where I felt that if people took pity on me, then that that meant I must be weak. And that I'd been, yeah, again, I think I just didn't want people to change their attitude towards me. I think that was kind of the, the biggest thing that, again, I didn't want let, I didn't want to let cancer define me. Mm. Um, I was so against, I, I kind of, I remember kind of saying to my friends, I'm still me. Like it doesn't change anything. I also think that it's a, um, a very common mindset for a 22 year old, mm. you know, um, to, to look back, how would I, yeah, I would have been the same probably. Like, you want to portray yourself as strong. It's yeah. only now later on in life, you know, in the last couple of years, I've understood that vulnerability is strength. Mm, absolutely. Uh, and not weakness. Um, but me at 22, mm. yeah, I don't think I would have <laughs> added that way. So yeah. um, hearing it now, it's, it's surprising to think that 
considering it's something that's well out of your control, you have mm. zero control over being diagnosed with cancer. Yeah. And to think that it was going through your head that you were you were weak mm. is surprising to someone who's not gone through that. But yeah. no one could know how you felt going through. Yeah. Not only your own diagnosis of cancer, mm. your your dad having gone through the diagnosis and it being terminal and then losing him mm. and being away from home. Yeah. Like you needed to grow up quickly. Yeah. Like that is, I'm um, even now there's that lump. Like I'm, it's, I'm trying to, um, try and put myself and I always want to, with the guests that mm. come on here, I want to try and put myself in their shoes emotionally. I just don't think I can yeah. with you. This, this is, this yeah. is a lot, man. But, um, yeah. Wow. I think I can, I was thinking about this recently that actually I feel that I'm a bit dismissive of what I've gone through as well, that I can talk about it quite candidly almost. Logically. Yeah. Um, Detaching from that emotional yeah, element uh, to it. Are you doing that now? No, I think I can, I, I can look at it emotionally. Mm. I can, I still feel those feelings. Mm. Um, and I mean, it feels like it's quite... It's, it feels like it's quite fitting that I'm talking about kind of my experiences and my dad today because it's it's actually his birthday. So, like, yeah. Wow. So it feels almost, um, yeah, it just feels quite fitting. Mm. Um, so... I might need to get Stuart to get some tissues. <laughs> <laughs> this is... Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Wow, that is um, incredible. Like, yeah. to be here yeah. talking about him and you know, your journey yeah. on his birthday. Yeah. That's incredible, man. So it's, yeah. And I think that certainly feels that I know that he's with me, whatever it is I do. Normally kind of look at me like, oh, for fuck's sake, <laughs> what are you doing? But <laughs> mm. um, yeah, just, no, I think that I, I do feel like I owe an awful lot to him um, and certainly kind of his attitude as well. And mm. that, I, which I kind of adopted and uh, I think it kind of really kind of saw me through it. Um, but yeah, I think that actually um, when kind of it came to, I suppose I, suppose I kind of felt like I, I dealt with it in a fashion which felt right at the time. Um, I think I remember kind of telling telling my best friends and immediately they kind of went with the... Um, the kind of really dark humor, which was it's our group of friends like that. Yeah, it's my group of friends like that. That's kind of how we cope with with things. That's, um, and I think that having always had kind of a self-deprecating sense of humor as well, that if I could joke about it, it almost kind of took the the severity of the situation out of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think was also help. It also helped me process it. Mm. That okay if this kills me, like, which it might, mm. I mean, it could, there, there's still kind of, there's still that risk, although I'm in remission now, there's still the, the risk it could come back. So having to deal with that and having to deal with the fact like, well, I might die from this. Um, I mean, we never know when our number's up, but look at myself like, if I, if I died from it, well, would I be quite happy with how I've lived my life and, I do think I would be. I guess. But, is that what it did for you? 
Yeah. There's a couple of things I want to talk about. First off, yeah. you said that you were quite dismissive and I instantly picked up that that was your, your coping mechanism. Mm. That was your way of being able to have, because people who dismiss their trauma, mm. their emotions, it's always a coping mechanism to be able to navigate life. Mm. Because when it becomes, I guess you either dismiss it and box it up or you escape from it. Yeah. Me as a drug addict, I escaped. I ran and I used drugs and I drank alcohol to completely self-medicate and numb myself. Um, I know a lot of people who dismiss mm. and it's pff, stone wall. You're not, yeah. these emotions aren't going to penetrate me because I've got shit to do. Yeah. Like business needs to be attended to. And I guess that for you to not only be dealing with your own emotions, but the emotions of your dad passing, but then also how how everyone around you is coping. Mm. Like, I guess it was one or two options for you, right? Yeah. And and dismissing it to a degree mm. was a way of doing that and um, yeah. being uh, able to move absolutely. forward. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, yeah, just um, the fact that you were talking about kind of dismissing and, and running from it, that's, uh, I felt that was me kind of all over. Really? That I was there like, right, okay, park that. Mm-hmm. let's do something else yeah let's we can come back to this when we're ready but we know that that's not going anywhere so again i think compartmentalizing i think yeah. like really helped me uh, process it and again being able to process it when i felt i was ready to um again like that that certainly in that first year after his death um certainly took a lot to process and um it really i suppose again just compartmentalizing to be like okay that's the situation those are the facts work with those don't work with anything else don't work with how you're feeling don't work with any possibilities um both have you pos- done therapy uh i i did uh i did a couple of sessions when my dad was diagnosed yeah. um but normally the way you're talking is very similar to things yeah. and, and tactics that i've learned through my therapy yeah. psychotherapy specifically and compartmentalizing is one of them mm. and it is a way of being able to access certain things but only a shutting leaving those four doors shut but opening that yeah. door and then allowing that to come in and dealing with that only yeah. it's a very good way of of being able to manage it Mm, absolutely um, manage the trauma manage the feelings yeah, yeah. um and i think i i do feel like i owe a lot to my mum with that and um so because she was a physiotherapist and she worked specifically with um kind of looking at pain in the clinical environment as well yeah and i remember kind of the real like the number of conversations where i just kind of went mum, i just can't deal with it like I'm just feeling so overwhelmed with all of it mm. and I remember she just kind of sat me down and we just kind of um drew up uh, a grid of kind of most important to least important and kind of um how much time you should spend on it something that is really important and needs a lot of time then obviously it's where you that's how you kind of prioritize it yeah something that doesn't take much time but it's still very important and again you can look at that as being like a quick win like Mm. focus with that deal with that and then kind of continue working towards everything else um and i think that i think my mum 
really helped me in terms of processing everything and um and i don't know how she did it because i think she's an absolute saint I was about to say, she sounds like a yeah. fucking warrior, She's, mate. An absolute yeah. warrior. Absolutely. Shout out. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to my mum. Shout out, Mumsy. <laughs> but, yeah, so she... And she was kind of always in, uh, my source of inspiration for being so level-headed. Yeah. And that it was that kind of... It's the, the grace of a swan kind of along the water, kind of moving so... Um, yeah, so gracefully. And then underneath the surface just paddling like mad yeah but that i think that's also how i've uh kind of taken that approach as well that again don't let yeah compartmentalize and, and process things in your own time when you feel you're ready mm. to do so yeah but do it yeah like don't like yeah don't um give yourself an excuse not to be able to do it mm. Um, it never leaves you you know that that type and especially what you're talking about that level of emotion and trauma and feeling just it will will always come back Mm. Um, so you definitely did the right thing by handling it like that I'm just I'm in awe because when you first shared in a meeting Mm. you know we only do what five minutes yeah and you kind of like touched upon your story and even then I was like whoa that's, that's a hell of a story but to actually know unravel your journey and i feel like we're only (laughs) halfway through um because we've not even got into treatment or anything like that yet to actually see how i'm trying to like look at you the younger version of you Mm. and how you handle this i'm trying to picture you at uni sat in that is it patrick day yeah the patrick day the patrick day um yeah like shout out to your parents yeah big time for moulding you into such a brave young man. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think it's funny that I never really saw it as, uh, I suppose never kind of saw it as brave, never saw it as anything other than just cracking on and just, Mm. again, getting your head down and just getting on with it because I think there are, to me there are, real forms of bravery which I didn't which I don't think I that I wouldn't include how I've reacted to if that if that makes sense like so I see so again thinking about this that when you see someone and certainly with um with children with um kind of terminal illnesses or kind of real life-threatening illnesses and that their constant source of optimism and constant source of happiness um even though that they know that they know something's going on, but not necessarily aware of their their situation. Yeah. And even then are just want to be happy, want to be um want to kind of get through whatever they're going through and and yeah, see their parents happy, see um see their friends spend time and just living as children should live. Yeah. And that to me is really inspiring. And that to me is kind of really brave. And I don't think I can compare anything that I went through compared to, compared to what, they, what people like that go through at all. I think bravery comes in different forms, doesn't it? Um, 
I guess bravery is associated to what it is that you're going through mm. as an individual at that time. Um, bravery could mean for someone who's depressed, you know, bravery could mean getting up and taking a shower that day yeah. and checking in on a friend. Mm. Um, bravery could mean so much to so many different people. I am looking at you right now and thinking fucking warrior, <laughs> like extremely brave. And it's not so much your journey through cancer. It's dealing with the passing of your father mm. whilst going through it. That to, for me, there's the bravery to face it with such, again, optimism to like, this is the situation, this could kill me and I'm okay with that. Like yeah. that to me is immense bravery. Um, yeah. And that is, yeah, you, uh, you inspire me, man. You're, you're an you. absolute legend um, to, to be able to, to face up. Were you still going to uni at this point? Were you, so were you going to classes? Yeah, and so, um, so... Just cracking uh, on like normal. <laughs> like. So I'd... Uh, <laughs> so just as I was... Uh, so I'd, I'd finished my, finish my course. Um, what were you studying, by the way? Uh, so sport journalism. Okay. So, um, I mean, this kind of setup I'm kind of relatively familiar with. Yeah, as well. nice. So we used to do kind of a lot of interviewing, a lot of podcasting yeah. and... I'm guessing you're coming across a lot more relaxed than I am. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm still quite nervous. This is like my third podcast ever. (laughs) Um, No, I think that it's just, uh, so, yeah. So I'd finished my degree. Um, I stayed down in Brighton because I'd just been elected um, president of my students' union as well. Nice. Walked into a bit of a shit show um, and... um, so at that point, the I think the chief exec had, um, was on gardening leave. So I walked into this role and I was responsible for 22,000 students as well. So again, like I haven't, didn't really give myself much time to, to, um, to process kind of everything as well. Like, um, and then, yeah, responsible for 22,000 students had to, build a relationship back up with with the university because I walked in and there was nothing kind of really there. Mm. Um, and then, so looking to hire a new chief exec, um, then I had to go through, uh, then I had to run a, a, a restructure as well. So again, I'm 22 at this point, um, essentially running a, a million pound business, charity as well. Wow. And then having to deal with everything else and just, yeah, so... Um, <laughs> How did you cope? I, I look back and I'm like, I have no yeah, idea. <laughs> Just like... Yeah, uh, that is a lot, man. Yeah. Um, I think I, like, I think it got to a point where I kind of realised that I'd have to tell people like about my, uh, yeah, about my situation. So at this point, it was still mm. no one knew. Yeah. No, no one knew. No one knew. You were ju- the first person I told was HR at when I just started the. And just how the long job. after your diagnosis was that? So this was uh, about th- three weeks. So I kind of said, that's a heavy three weeks. Man. Yeah. Mm. So I walked into the job and I, I kind of went. By the way, um, I have no idea what this means. I have no idea 
what the situation is, but um, yeah, this is, yeah. I have cancer and yeah, like you're, you dealing with it is as much as me dealing with it. And mm. I will try and be as open and honest with you as, as I can, but like, this is a really quite fresh diagnosis. So I will try and keep you in the loop as much as I can, but yeah, I have yeah. no idea what it means. That's heavy. So let's let's tap into um, let's go down the the treatment road. Mm-hmm. Let's. So you're 22. You're yep. running this million pound yeah. charity. <laughs> you held on to your diagnosis um, for a few weeks before telling HR. Yeah. From that point, mm-hmm. when did it become okay? This is what I'm dealing with. Yeah. This is what I've been told the treatment plan is. Yeah. At that point, were you more optimistic about obviously surviving this or was it still a 50-50 in your head that shit I could die from Mm. this where were you at that point so I was so the referral to the Marsden was in the August time Um, and so so they basically said at at that consultation in in August that basically laid it all out and said um, we're not going to give you treatment until you desperately need it Mm -hmm. um we're, because it could potentially come back as a more aggressive form of cancer, which is also more resistant to treatment. And that could be in one year, that could be five years, that could be 10, 30. So, the, so to me, it's probably a lifelong thing. Um, and it's probably something that um, will stay with me until I die. If I die from it, then that's like shit luck. But... Um, yeah. And then seems like you've already accepted that that is a high possibility. Yeah, I think as much as I wouldn't like to, I think it's I think it's a, not an inevitability, but it's just something which I think I have. I would make myself at peace knowing that mm. um, that it's a real slow burn, and that again, that the time that I've been given is I've made the most with and done what I've done what I could. Um, but again, I suppose it's, if we, like, we'd never know if we walk out of it and get hit by a bus, that's, mm. that could be it. Mm. Um, so. I'm a massive believer in that our paths are already written. Yeah. Um, and we are simply here to walk it, mm. whatever that may be. Yeah. Um, so I guess in a roundabout way, we have a very similar yeah. view on that. Um, you know, um, yeah, sorry. Take me yeah. back to. Yeah. Um, no, I think it's. Uh, I, I I think it's an interesting thing as well. I think that um, there are. Yeah, I I know what you mean about like predeterminism as well, um, and I think that your choices do sort of affect that to an extent. But at the same time, as you said, it's that kind of. It's either one of two. Yeah, and then. my my choices definitely do now um yeah go in the favor of let's go for it let's Mm. jump out that plane because if i'm gonna have an accident and die from jumping out a plane it was meant to be let's go it's the kind of you look at things differently um and it's only since i got into recovery and got clean um because i never thought i'd make it to where i am now you know Mm. I, i thought i'd be uh i'd have overdosed or died or you know i've been in so many dangerous situations I actually never thought I'd see uh to where I am now but and again that kind of is it's 
totally different. Having survived cancer and having got clean from drugs are two totally different things. But you look back and go, I've survived something yeah. that could have killed me. Yeah. And so the look on life now is, well, I, I know when my time is going to come because yeah. it's pre-written. Yeah. Let's try and enjoy this a little bit. Yeah. You know, no, we're only here once, man. That's, that's absolutely it. And I think that has certainly shaped kind of my... Yeah. I kind of say that I've got that um, golden retriever outlook, which is, I love life. Everything kind of excites me. I'm there yeah, like, yeah. what else can I do? Like, yeah, um, yeah just here for a good time. Mm. Um, and as long as it lasts. And so that's that's kind of my attitude towards it. Like, yeah. life's far too short to hold grudges. Life is far too short to, to be angry and pissed off at the world. Mm. It's very easy to do that. Mm. Um but I suppose it's, I think that just helps me find the happiness in the little things as well. Yeah, it's a great um, outlook. It's a great outlook. Really good yeah, outlook. Just like, I mean, I've like built a fantastic network around me as well. Um, finding the man cave has been, has been a blessing and that actually even as, it's kind of coming full circle, but even um, being able to kind of dip out of sessions um, mm. for a few weeks and be able to come back and everyone's there like, Oh, it's, it's great yeah, to see yeah. as well. And yeah. that kind of that kind of brings me so much joy. Mm. And obviously kind of being in being in the sessions and again sharing some really heavy stories as well. But feeling part of that as well is kind of really mm. um yeah, it's like really that's where I take joy and happiness as well, knowing that I built that that network around me. Yeah, of course. But anyway, going back to the the actual treatment side of things. So um the uh yeah so had received uh the plan for my treatment which was again not going to receive anything until i need it um and then basically had checkups every three months um and then so kind of all of a sudden life almost kind of carries on and then almost just before those before my next checkup it's almost like everything had just slowed right down. Yeah. And that feeling of, those feelings of anxiety had just kind of come back to the forefront of my mind to be like, by the way, like you, something could happen. Something might have changed like that you don't know about. Yeah. Like, you might be told that you've got to start treatment. And then, so two sides of me being like, there's that side, but there's also the the other side, which is no, don't think about that. Just, again, go into that room, deal with what they have to say at the time, and then, again, you can process it. And But, again, there's no point speculating. Deal with the facts. Sounds like you just battled your own mind yeah. 24-7. Yeah. Like, battling that, this is going to be okay, but this mm. is the reality of the situation. These are the feelings that mm. are, you know, that the anxiety. What was yeah. the... What was the main, because I'll come on to when you were in the middle of treatment, mm. but what was anxiety the main feeling pre-treatment? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think it was probably that, the, so leading up to, it's always, it, and it was exactly the same every single time, that, that I could just feel this kind of this knot in my stomach mm. and just there like just slowly kind of just getting bigger and bigger and those feelings of butterflies that didn't quite just go um 
and this will probably kind of be almost like in like two weeks before um, before every checkup, um, and then all of a sudden they say, "Yeah, no, everything's fine," and then you walk out there like. Okay. Huge yeah. sense of relief. Yeah, just and that, that feeling of and relax. Yeah. And like back to back to normality. Yeah. Um and this happened again. So every kind of three months for the first couple of years. Um and then um, So you had two years of that. Oh more than that. So <laughs> I wow. didn't actually start treatment until October twenty twenty. So I for had three years yeah, after three years of of just these constant checkups. Being told, every three months. Every three months. Wow. So it was in the it was in the third year that That's I kind crazy. of turned around to the doctors and went, Can we just like space this out a bit more? They said, mm. Yeah, that's fine, we'll do it every six months. So I think it was six months from yeah, about the two and a half year mark onwards. Um know, so, but you, you had cancer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You were getting checked up to say that it was it was yeah. doing nothing. Yep. It hasn't spread, it was and you just had to walk out of there every three months and crack on knowing you had cancer but knew that there was nothing you could do about it because yep. I'm assuming that there was no surgery available. You couldn't, there was, it wasn't, yeah. you said it wasn't a tumour, so, was it? No, so, um, well, they said, uh, so I asked, I remember asking about um, about surgery as well because particularly for the, for the lump that I had there. Mm. Um, and they said, um, well, no. Um, because there's so many, there's like thousands of kind of nerve endings as well. Mm. Like if we, if we, if we did anything, then it could leave you with kind of facial damage. I was like, quite like my face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, so that was just not kind of really an option, but then I remember kind of having a couple of, um, pet CT scans. So that, that's when basically they bump, they pump you full of, um, radioactive liquid. Mm. Um, and that will highlight on your body whereabouts there are active cells. Okay. Um, to me, it wasn't just localized to my neck. Um, so that's where I found out that I had um, some nodes kind of uh, in the bottom of my neck, um, just under my diaphragm, in my spleen. Um, so it's what they call kind of wider spread as well. So um, that's what they consider stage three. Um, and the way in which lymphomas were compared to normal. Um, or to other types of cancers as well, that your um, it is based on the amount that it's whether or not it's local, if it's kind of widely spread throughout the body. And yours was mine was kind of spread spread out. And you had um, stage three at this point, yeah, and still so, no stage treatment. three, no treatment. This is blowing my yeah. mind. So it's quite. Um, I mean, the more I think about it, like the more I think, oh, oh Jesus, like fair enough, yeah. <laughs> That's but, um, yeah, so, and I remember uh, it was after COVID, so yeah, August 2020, um, having gone through these appointments for so long, um, that's when I had kind of another, uh, I had another follow-up scan. And because um, I, I felt like I was starting to, well, I remember getting, getting more night sweats. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't sure if that was just because I was overweight or um, if it was particularly hot, because it was, and I was. Um, and uh, so I remember kind of telling the, the consultant about it and I remember they, that's when they kind of booked me in for a scan. Um, and that's when they found out, again, that I had kind of, there had been much more development. 
So I had some nodes in my liver as well. And um, so at that point they said, we're going to have to get you in for treatment kind of pretty sharpish. Wow. So, so was the night sweats a reaction to that, so that or was it the kind so of that, mental side of things? Because I know someone yeah. very close to me at the moment yeah. um, who has night sweats when, you know, she's going mm. through um, high pressure, yeah. uh, anxiety. So do you think it was the mental or was it so an actual that, byproduct that, that, that of physical? That was actually um, one of the B symptoms, which I had to look out for as well. Right, okay. Um, so, and I think that that played on my mind an awful lot as well. Um, and uh, knowing that, again, just overthinking, whether, is it going to be like, oh, has there been development? Is this just, again, is it me being overweight? Is this me mm. like, being too hot? Is it, what is it? Um, well, if you've had three years of, no, you're fine. Yeah. Well, you're not fine. You've got cancer, but you're <laughs> yeah. fine. You've yeah. got, you're fine. You're like, is this the time yeah. or is it not? And again, it's that mental, mm. it's just a head fuck. Yeah, absolutely. It's an absolute head fuck yeah. um, to be sat there in that position but yeah. I guess in a roundabout way when they said no we, it's time for treatment were you mm. quite, I can only assume that you would be quite relieved in a weird way yeah like, finally we can do something about this now or yeah, is that not how you felt I suppose it's a at the time I was there, like oh fuck's sake like I yeah that, that was just well, like, this is a whole new yeah, set of feelings that yeah, I've now exactly, got to yeah. deal with and I've now got to yeah. retell everyone that this is where I'm at. Yeah. And, um, and I suppose that actually made it easier that, that COVID was still a thing, that mm. people were being so incredibly um, cautious. But I think, I suppose it's the, the real kind of hard-hitting thing was um, I remember you, you pretty much have to sign the to say that you understand the course of treatment that you're going to be having. So mine was um, six rounds of R-TROP chemotherapy, which is um, kind of intravenous. Um, uh, like I basically sit in a chair for six hours, eight hours, receive this dose, and then um, kind of be on, my, be on my merry way. You sat in a chair for six to eight hours. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Just and at a height. On it like a, a drip? Yep. Yeah. Wow. And so because of, again, because of COVID and everything, um, wasn't allowed to see any family. So normally you'd be able to have, you'd have the the, the seats and then um, people would be allowed to kind of uh, friends, family to kind of come visit and everything. I'm sorry to laugh, but yeah. when I yeah. can't think this could get worse, it gets yeah. worse. Yeah. Yes. Oh my God. So I'd, I'd be dropped off at the, at the hospital and this is down in Sutton as well. So it's like had a two and a half hour, yeah, two hour drive down to Sutton to be dropped off for about nine o'clock in the morning. Um, I would then go do my bloods because then um, if my blood cell count or if my white blood cell count was um, in a particular, uh, if it was lower than the threshold, I wouldn't be able to have the, the chemotherapy because the chemo just wipes out your entire immune system. Mm. Um and you'd be so susceptible to literally anything. Really? Um, that even just like a any um like a cough can can kill you. Wow. It's kind of really like really kind of serious. Um and so yeah, then I'd have my uh my appointment with my clinician at about eleven. Um and then they then at that point they say yes, you can have your treatment or no you can't. Um and then I wouldn't be in the the uh, room until about 
1, 2 p.m. because they have to kind of physically make the chemotherapy on site. Um, and then, yeah, so I'd go in for about half one, two o'clock and then uh, just sit in that chair by myself. Um, for for six music. to eight hours? Yeah. So normally it'd be, I wouldn't leave. Sounds like a 12-hour day. Yeah. So I remember I would... I wouldn't leave the hospital until I'd normally be kind of last out of the the um, their unit. And you had to go through all of this alone, but all yeah. or with someone on the end of a telephone. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Man. And then someone would come pick me up probably about eight, maybe nine o'clock in the evening. How do you feel after a round of chemo? Oh, I'm fucked. <laughs> really? <laughs> like, it yeah, completely it's, batter you? Yeah, like just drains you of everything? Yeah. Just feeling of it's the feeling of nausea it's the feeling of uh real kind of tiredness it just it's so draining what's going through your head um i think doing a lot of soul searching i suppose at that point being like again this is my situation like it's almost um you don't really have very much else to do so just fall asleep have a bit of a nap mm. um and again it's, it's just not i like i think <laughs> you make it sound yeah. so um yeah. like light yeah like but I suppose, ah, just fall asleep <laughs> have a bit of a nap just had some chemo <laughs> <fuck yeah. laughs> you just, make it sound yeah. so light-hearted but it really yeah. isn't like, but again i think uh, i think again it goes back to the the dismissing thing but um and I think I do downplay it an awful lot. Like mm. I was, I remember after the second round of, of chemo, I was throwing up for about 48 hours straight. How many? 48 hours. Wow. Yeah. So I remember kind of going, going home. And then just when I had, I wasn't able to keep anything down at all. And did you so, lose your hair? Yep. Um, yeah. I, so that, that was a source of, um, uh, comedy, I suppose, for for my friends, because I, I told, I remember telling my friends saying that chances are I'd lose my hair. I mean, my dad lost his hair. Mm. Um, what they also don't tell you is on a slight tangent, but um, is that a your hair might not grow back, um, b it might grow back a completely different colour, and c it might grow back um, also like wavy. If you had straight <laughs> hair, it could come back wavy, like vice versa. So they're like, it's a bit of a roulette at this point. So I was like, oh, cool. I, th- I think I look quite good with an afro. Oh, man. But, um, <laughs> Just on top of everything <laughs> yeah. else. So, I might not get my hair back yeah. or it might come back as an afro. So, <laughs> so, so I was there like, okay. Well, Just something know, else I need yeah. to compartmentalise. <laughs> so I remember kind of um, after, 10 days after the, um, my first lot of chemo, I remember kind of running through my, running my fingers through my hair thinking, no, oh, you know what? I've lasted, lasted quite a long time. Mm. I had a kind of really ridiculous moustache at the time as well. Um, and... I was fine with losing my hair. I was less fine about losing my beard. Yeah. Because I'd had quite a good, quite a good beard at that point. And mm. um, yeah, just remember kind of shaving it all off. I'm thinking, mm, this is quite, this is like, feels like the worst bit. Did you do that? Did you, did you shave yeah, your so head? I, yeah, I shaved yeah. it. And then again, so 10 days after my, um, the first lot of treatment, I kind of ran, run my fingers through my hair and kind of a few strands came out. I was like, right, I'm going to get rid of this before mm. I can, and so I shaved it off, wet shaved my head as well. Turns out I've got quite a good 
bald head. Um, which <laughs> well, that kind of like, yeah. uh, if this doesn't grow back, I can live with yeah, this. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Again, like the worst bit, I was there, like, please can my beard grow back? I don't yeah. care about the hair, but just yeah. please the beard. And um, so then my uh, my group of best mates started calling me Butterbean. <laughs> Oh God! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, again, like it's that—that that, that was kind of humour enough in the situation. And again, it, it, and I thought on my worst days, if I can't laugh at myself in this situation, then what hope have I got? And that yeah. was kind of—I think that was kind of the main thing that kind of got me through it as well. That like it's all—it's all a bit of a circus in the end. Like we're, as I said, we're we're not here for a very long time. And like again shit happens mm. so like yeah you can either lament it and you can either kind of uh try and fight change and fight um and try and resist it or path of least resistance which i think has which i kind of adopted and um admittedly has kind of got me into some situations as a result but actually coping with it it'd be like okay I'll, I'll i'll do what i can do like i'm i feel i remember kind of talking to my my boss at work at the time and he's he was so supportive as well and he said just let me know if you're having a down day then that's absolutely okay just work within your means i guess it's good when you've got you know friends mm. who are there to have banter yeah. take the piss out of you yeah, you've got, you know, your mum, who obviously yeah. sounds so supportive and um, just someone you know is your kind of rock mm. um, and understands it also from what happened with your yeah. dad. But then you've got other people around you, like your boss, yeah. kind of all those little different pieces made you feel supported in yeah. in all angles. Yeah, um, I'd hope that if I went through something similar, that my, mm. my friends would be the same or I yeah. already know that they would. Um, I'd need that. Yeah. I would need that to help get me through yeah. and to, you know, stop it being so dark. Mm. Because when you look at the reality of that, it's dark. Yeah. You know, you having lost your, your dad mm. during your time through it. You know, these are these are times where that can really mess with the person's mm. head. And I guess the the way that you've handled it is the, what was the best way for you, right? Mm. Because I'm trying to put myself in that situation. I don't think I could have handled it the way yeah. you did. I don't. I just don't honestly think I could. Yes. Yeah. Um, how long we got, mate? Uh, one hour twenty-five. One hour twenty-five. Jesus. Wow. <laughs> okay. We were uh, supposed to be doing hour episodes, but um, no. I I knew that it, it yeah. would be such uh, an interesting conversation. I've I've still got so many questions. Yeah. Um, but I can come talking, back for part two. Yeah, I think we need to do a part two, don't we? Because um, obviously we were talking mm. before, like, do we structure it? Do yeah. we, is there anything that you want to talk about? And we were like, no, let's just yeah. go with the flow. And in my voice note to you today, I was like, don't worry, mate, we'll be fine. I'm sure we could talk for hours and obviously we can. Um, but yeah, we, we do need to wrap up. Yeah. Um, I guess I've understood you more as an individual, your journey. Um to get you to a place to where you are now, I understand your reasons and your ability, mm -hmm. more your ability to dip in and out of the man cave. Um, 
and the reason why you are so happy and honest because you haven't come every time and just been, you know, walking around picking people up because I swear you are like the strongest person <laughs> I know. Like, and you're giving these amazing bear hugs to people. Um, but you come and you of or you still have that ability ability to be vulnerable. You real have you know good real ability to be vulnerable. Um I'm I'm so sad that it's at an hour twenty five because I've got so many questions about your rugby, you know, the brotherhood, about your rugby. Let's let's tap into that quickly. We'll we'll give yeah. it another fifteen minutes. Um so you're a rugby player. Yep. Yep. And were you playing rugby kind of, was rugby something that you found post remission? Uh so I've been playing rugby since uh since I was about eight mm. or so. Um and so played uh so I started playing when I, I grew up in France as well. So played when You grew up in France. Yeah. Oh there's there's well, so you've much. got to come back for a part two, <laughs> man. You have um, to Yeah, so I started playing when I was uh grew up in France, but then moved back to the UK uh yeah, two thousand five. Um and kind of got back into playing there. Um which is funny because my I come from a family of footballers. My dad was football through and through. His dad was football as well, um, and both played to kind of a kind of a very good standard. Mm. And then there was me, like, ball, pick up a run, yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I built up um, that camaraderie uh, and that that sense of kind of team work and bonding and stuff like that from playing rugby from. Yeah, since when I picked it back up again from when I was about kind of 10, 11 onwards. Um, and the moment that kind of really sticks with me is we had, uh, so when at uni, and these are guys I'd only really met for, I only were kind of really known for three years. So in the grand scheme of things, again, not particularly long time. Um, and um, so we had kind of socials, every every Wednesday which is always a bit of a piss up and um but towards the end when they do um when all the leavers do their speeches um I'd kind of stood up and that that was kind of shortly after my diagnosis as well but in that moment I kind of knew um that it was kind of a real brotherhood yep and uh, after I kind of did my speech um, there wasn't a dry in the room, which is, mm. I mean, but um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that actually, kind of in that moment, everyone kind of went, "Oh shit, this actually means a lot more to us than than we realised as well." That in those moments that you are all there to kind of rely on each other, you are there to, um, both on and off the field, and we'd always kind of, I think, with rugby, has always been, um, slightly homoerotic I suppose um but oh it's that I suppose it's a real kind of you will do anything for your mates on the yeah. field yeah so therefore why would you not do everything for your mates off the field at the yeah. same time that I know that so if we're on the same team I know that you'll like put your body on the line to get the team to where it needs to be mm. um and again I think that that does kind of border between appropriate and inappropriate at times yeah um but um, yeah, there's, and I think as a group, you can 
roast each other, you can be pretty horrible to each other yep. as a group to your own. But if anyone else does it, then that's a that's a yeah. big, big no-no. And like you know that you've got 30 mates who are there to back you up, whatever you whatever you do. Mm. And wherever I played, that's always been the case. And have always been able to form that camaraderie. Yeah. Um, and I remember telling people about my diagnosis and they're like, oh shit, well, like what can we do to help? That was always their first reaction. Mm. Be like, I'm sorry to hear that you're going to lose your hair. That's going to be quite funny or whatever that might be. Mm. Just like put, poke fun at the situation. Yeah. Um, and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, that's, that's cool. I know where I stand with you. Let's, mm. let's just kind of get on with things. Um, and I think particularly at Milton Keynes, who I now play for, um, that was post treatment. And once I'd just got into remission, I'd, Got the all clear at the beginning of March. So again, this is uh, so when everything was just starting to open back up for for clubs and everything. So people were allowed to play sports again. Um, I remember kind of getting in contact with a mate who used to play here, um, and I was playing full contact rugby by the end of March again. So, and when I went to and spoke to my clinician about it afterwards, she was like. Really? Like, <laughs> you've just gone through like six rounds of chemo. Like, six rounds, yeah, was it? Six rounds, yeah. Six rounds. And every single time, like, it just. And at the end, you're just, yeah, bossing people out of yeah. the way. So I was there, like, right, that's, that's it, that's done. I Warrior. think I, can, I certainly feel like I'm, I feel the effects from it more now than I did at the time, which is quite funny. Um, so when was your last round of chemo? Uh, January 21. End of January 21. So two and a half years. Yeah. You're so, feeling the effects more now. Yeah. In what way? So I feel whether or not it's psychologically, but it feels to me like if I take a if I take a knock, if I take an injury, it takes me a lot longer to recover now. Okay. Than it ever did. Yeah. Um, and I think that to me is I'm attributing that to um to the, the chemotherapy. Um, whether or not that is, I don't know, but that's mm. that to me kind of is the logical explanation for it. Um and I think a lot more things like I have, um, say I, I say I have kind of problems with my hips. Again, I think as a result from it, that um, it feels like I'm like one bad accident away from from retiring playing rugby. Really? Um, Is your yeah twenty eight? Yeah, twenty eight. Yeah. Um, and that actually, I think it's probably. Yeah, I think, again, that's the reality of the situation that I'd love to be playing forever. I don't think that's going to be the case. Mm. So, again, up until that happens, then why why worry about it? I know that that time is coming. I know there's going to be... I'm going to put myself in for a tackle, which I know I'm not going to be able to recover from as quickly as I want to. Um, but it goes but, along with everything you've been saying yeah. this whole time, dealing yeah. with this, is I'll deal with it, but I'm not going to back out while I'm here. No. Like I'm going to, I'm going to give yeah. it 100% give it in everything yeah. I do, including rugby and yeah. including life in general. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, what a warrior, man. Yeah. What an absolute warrior. Well, thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing your story. Um, I probably could think of so many more questions. <laughs> I think we didn't even scratch the surface in yeah. terms of 
you know, the, the mental aspect and, and how you cope with that. Um, but I can see Stuart in the peripheral leaning over, like, we need to wrap this up. <laughs> <laughs> so we Sorry. have our closing tradition on the Man Cave podcast, um, which is, what is your favourite quote? So been thinking long and hard about this one. And the one I always kind of go back to is, um, I think you see it a lot with kind of Winnie the Pooh now, okay. um, which again, always kind of feels quite fitting. Um, but it's uh, always remember that you're stronger than you seem, braver than you believe, and smarter than you think. Love that, mate. Absolutely love that. Well, Callum, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you here. Um, keep spreading positivity in the world. Keep coming to the man cave and um, spreading, you know, that good energy and good vibes to all the brothers that we have here. And uh, yeah, never stop giving those bear hugs, man. <laughs> nice one, bro. Legend. Yeah.